Hello, my name is Micah Watson, and this is Henry Conversations, the podcast of the Paul Henry Institute for the study of Christianity and politics at Calvin University. And my guest today is Susan McWilliams Barnes. She is chair and professor of politics at Pomona College in God's country, the great golden state of California. She also co-edits the journal American Political Thought. She is the author of at least two books, an editor or co-editor of several more, not only an accomplished scholar, but an outstanding teacher, having won Pomona's Wig Award for Excellence in Teaching three times. I could go on for another hour on her resume, but I will stop. But want to mention that Sue has been, and I think still might be, she can correct me, a Girl Scout troop leader. She's a daughter, a sister, mom to two adorable kids, and married to Will Barnt. Fantastic fellow who also teaches politics at nearby Pitzer College. Sue, thanks for joining me for a Henry Conversation. Micah, thanks so much for having me here. And let me say thank you on behalf of the great state of California as well, what my husband now refers to as the Bear Republic for acknowledging its superiority in all things. Well, that I'm glad to hear that he has been so well educated. Um, is there anything that I missed out? Anything else I should mention about Susan McWilliams in terms of, uh, of an intro? Um, I think you've pretty much got it, except, Micah, you missed the fact that we attended graduate school together at Princeton about 20 years ago. That is true. This is not a cold call. 20 years ago, this school year, we both started at Princeton. Um, Let's start there with that a little bit. If we could go back and talk to the versions of ourselves that were starting off studying at Princeton 20 years ago, what would be most surprising? What would we say to those earlier versions of ourselves about 2020? And they'd say that, no, there's no way. Uh, there's no way I believe that. What, what have we lived through the last 20 years that would be most surprising to earlier versions of ourselves? Yeah, that's a great question, because in some ways, it doesn't feel that long ago to me. And in other ways, so much has happened. We started graduate school even before 9-11. And the pre-9-11 America is, in some ways, hard for me to bring back to life these days. Um, but, you know, part of being a political scientist or a political theorist in particular is that it's hard to answer a question like that, because... When I'm looking now from the position of retrospect, I can look at so many events and see the seeds of those events happening years before. I guess it's sort of like I have children like you have children, Micah. And I remember that when Marjorie, our oldest daughter, was a baby, we looked at her and said, wow, when she's 10 years old, we'll be able to see um, in her face just her baby face, right? We'll be able to say, oh, she's always had those cheeks or she's always mm. had those eyes. But in the moment of having the baby, right, you don't actually know what your child's going to look like 10 years in the future. Right. So the retrospect is much easier than the prospect and, you know, thinking about what would have been surprising to you is hard. But though I can say now I see the seeds of this 20 years ago, if not earlier, I think the thing that would be most surprising to me today is the state of the Republican Party. Um, not just the fact that the Republican Party nominated Donald Trump to be his candidate for president, that Donald Trump won the presidency, um, but I think more generally, what I take to be the collapse of the Republican Party uh, in American politics. Now, I, let me say again, 20 years ago, there were people, and I was one of them, who said the Republican Party is a coalition that between its social conservatism and its economic libertarianism cannot hold, that something's going to have to give sooner or later. But I'm not sure that I could have foreseen that it would break in the you know, basically proto-authoritarian cult of personality direction that I think it's broken in or seems to be breaking in in the last few years. Yeah, that's, that raises this, this question about whether 
the way that it's broken is a surprise or not. So I have some colleagues who have written that the break towards Trump among conservatives has been there all along, um, that that is actually part of the DNA, particularly of, of white evangelicals. Um, for me, you know, that's kind of the tribe that I've come out of. And it's, it's interesting, Paul Henry, for whom the Henry Institute is named, evangelical, obviously white comes out of that also, but then works at Calvin, has this reformed identity. But in the 1990s, you had all of these pretty leading figures of the conservative right say lots of things about character when it comes to political leadership in reference to Bill Clinton. And, and if you look at the some of the polling data, the, the demographic most likely to say that character matters for politics would have been conservative Christians or evangelicals. And and that that switch to now where that uh, percentage is quite a bit lower and this embrace of Donald Trump surprised me that that would it'd be that much of a reversal in terms of the, the role of character for a, for a political leader. Does it, does it surprise you or do you see, as some of my colleagues do, that the, the roots for that were there all along? Well, I mean, like I said, I think that the roots were there. I mean, the Simpsons about 20 years ago had some episode where they have a joking imaginary future where Donald Trump is president, right? And the fact that the joke exists means that there was something in the culture that suggests, you know, even outlandishly that such a thing was on the realm of possibility. So so I think the roots were there, but I agree with you. That really surprised me. One of the things that struck me in the last couple of years is that when I've talked to people who have voted for Trump, usually what they say is something like, I know he's not a good guy, but. <laughs> um, right. And so, in fact, like people are explicitly stating in a funny way that character is of secondary importance to them, that all sorts of other considerations come before that. And I, I understand the reasons that people think that they should deprioritize individual character, but I'm surprised by the extent to which we hear those arguments, especially from people who have really dedicated their lives or have seemed to dedicate their lives to questions of moral integrity and character. Yeah. It, interestingly, when the Simpsons episode came out, Trump would have been I think a registered Democrat, right? He was—he seemed to be a Democrat for most of his career until it was expedient for him him not to be. You wrote a piece in 2016 in The Nation connecting Hunter S. Thompson's book about the Hell's Angels to the rise of Trump. I wouldn't uh -huh. expect you to, to recapsulate the entire piece, but you said he captured it exactly. And, and as I was reading that, I was thinking, I wonder after the events of January 6th, if you felt like that was a bit of a, a prophetic piece that yet you had come up with uh, in 2016. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what did you see in the Hell's Angels as, as given to us by Hunter S. Thompson? And then um, four years later, does it seem like that was pretty spot on? Sure. I, I've joked to a number of people that I wish that piece hadn't held up so well. Um, yeah, you know, I think Hunter S. Thompson is, and it's in part because of the garish, drug-fueled, gonzo persona that he really embraced, especially in his later years. Um, Hunter S. Thompson is one of the great observers of 20th century American politics and was in so many of his books, um, in the fiction and the nonfiction I find him more helpful to explaining contemporary American politics than most people who are ostensibly experts in American politics. And Hunter S. Thompson, when he wrote his book about the Hell's Angels, he wasn't primarily writing about them because they were a spectacle, though they were a spectacle. He was writing about them, and he says explicitly he was writing about them because he took them to be the vanguard of a new era of right-wing politics in the United States, defined by a class of Americans, mostly white and mostly male, though not exclusively, um, who had 
felt like they had done everything right in society. The original Hell's Angels were mostly military World War II veterans who had a fierce uh, and grew up with a fierce love of the United States and found themselves increasingly in a highly technical, high-skill economy where their contributions, and most of them were high school graduates, if that, were not valued, where they felt discarded and left out. Um, and in fact, the, the decision of the Hells Angels to ride Harley-Davidson's was a sort of really powerful metaphor for them. Um, the Harley-Davidson's had been the dominant American motorcycle until, in the early 1960s, Japanese imports came onto the field. And the Japanese imports, by every metric, were better motorcycles, faster, more fuel efficient, sleeker. Um, but the Angels adopted these clunkier, louder, more unwieldy motorcycles, the Harley-Davidson's, as a kind of symbol of what they took themselves to be, the Americans who had been left behind. And a big part of the Hell's Angels was adopting an ethic of what Thompson calls total retaliation, retaliation against the political system, retaliation against elites, retaliation against any institution that they took to be a kind of authoritative institution in society, retaliation against elections. Virtually the only major national institution that the Hell's Angels didn't turn on was the police and, to some degree, the military. In part because uh, for the Angels, those organizations, which it's possible to become a part of without a college degree, they're basically the only institutions that people in the Angels could imagine themselves being part of and the only way they could imagine themselves having any authority in American politics. For Thompson, then, what he saw in the future of American politics, and I really do think he sees Trumpism before um, we have the term Trumpism, is the fact that in an increasingly technological, high-skill society, we're going to find more and more people who feel that particular kind of displacement, that particular kind of rage, um, which comes from the sense that the game has been rigged against them, despite the fact that they did all the right, you know, quote-unquote, things. Um, the other thing that Thompson says that I find really interesting when he's talking about the Hell's Angels is he says part of what is going to fuel the success of movements in retaliatory politics like that of the Angels is that elites tend to underestimate and overlook those kinds of movements, to think of them mostly in terms of spectacle, to think of them mostly as kind of informal, loosey-goosey organizations, until the moment at which those people are beating down your door and in you know, Thompson's parlance, you know, raping your wives and daughters and burning down your cocktail parties. Now, when Thompson was talking about that, he was mostly talking about like what he took to be the oblivious elite left, right? The people in Berkeley who thought that the Hell's Angels were kind of cool and counterculture until they actually spent time with the Angels and realized that this wasn't just a kind of cool countercultural thing. When I think about what's recently happened in American politics, I think it's not the elite left who's kind of playing with fire and underestimating the retaliatory impulse uh, of people who have that kind of spirit, but it's the elite right, it's elite Republicans. I think that people like Senators Hawley and Cruz are playing with a kind of fire that they don't fully understand. And that was Thompson's big caution in the Hells Angels to elites who think that they can be spared for one reason or another, the anger, the vitriol, the hate, and the retaliatory violent impulses of people who've decided that they have nothing to lose by burning everything down.
That's a great answer. Uh, I would be remiss not to point out that there's also, for you, a, a familial connection to this piece insofar as your grandfather commissioned that piece by Thompson as editor of The Nation. Yeah, um, and that's partly how I found um, Hunter S. Thompson, and I think why I was inclined to take him seriously as a political thinker, because I knew that my grandfather, who was the editor of The Nation, sought out people, especially people on the fringes and inclined to the margins who might have something important to say about American politics. And he and Thompson maintained at least a friendly relationship until my grandfather died in 1980. It's a real credit to The Nation at that time that they were seeking out people like Thompson to give us a better sense of the full scope of American political life. So as you were talking about that piece, my head was nodding, and I suspect that a lot of people listening would be nodding to that as well. But I, I have some friends and colleagues, I think, who would acknowledge that the events of January 6th were certainly that flirtation with the groups that Hawley and Cruz have underestimated, not realizing they're playing with fire. But I think they would want to say, they want me to ask, and so I'll ask on their behalf, is there a version of that on the left without going into whataboutism or saying that Antifa or groups like that are at the same level as what we saw on January 6th. But is, is there a mirror, at least temptation, for the, the groups who also have rejected the American experiment culturally or politically and saying we need to, to burn it all down? How would, you, how would you respond to someone who'd want to ask about that, that other side? Um, I, I think there is, though I think Antifa is the wrong place to look. I think that the best example I can think of, and it's happening right now as we're recording this in January of 2021, is what's happened um, with the movement of predominantly fairly radical left people through the Reddit internet platform to undermine all sorts of major Wall Street hedge funds by basically putting short squeezes on their positions. I'm really struck by the parallels between the parlor culture and what we're hearing on Reddit on behalf of those people who are willing to, in some ways, blow up the stock market. Uh, when you read the explanations that people on Reddit are giving for why they're investing whatever little amounts of money they have to undermine these hedge funds, um, the stories are very similar to what you hear on the right when you're talking to people about why they support uh, certain of the kind of uh, violent insurrection, overthrowy kind of stuff, which is, wow, I've been really screwed over by this system repeatedly. I want the chance to stick it to the big powers however I can. And in fact, I am finding enjoyment in doing so. So that's the kind of stuff where at least at present, I would look to see this kind of impulse on the left. Um, and, and I do think it's there. It might not be as pronounced, and I'm not sure it's as widespread as I take it to be on the right, but I do think that that impulse is there on the left as well. I had not considered that, but that's definitely been in the news the last few days. And I can't totally claim to understand all the ins and outs of how that happened. But I had not made the connection with, with a leftward dissatisfaction of the system with that, but that's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so one of the things that I find really interesting about you is you kind of break the rules when you are looking at some of these groups that are unpopular, to put it mildly. And by breaking the rules, I mean, you, you try to look at them sympathetically, right? You, while not agreeing with them, you try to understand why uh, some people might come to find themselves 
in a more extremist sort of group. And I'm thinking in particular of the piece you wrote recently about QAnon. Uh, and, you know, political scientists and other social scientists have been measuring polarization uh, culturally, politically, and, and by all these measures, we are becoming more polarized. And I, I emailed to you earlier that, you know, we have Danielle Allen is contemplating a run for governor of Massachusetts. And uh, she spoke here at Calvin a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I have many friends who would be pretty delighted by that and some friends who definitely wouldn't. Uh, and then Sarah Huckabee Sanders just had the seven minute sort of uh, infomercial announcing her run for governor of Arkansas. And it's just the, the, the Venn diagram of people who would be glad that they're both running would be pretty, um, pretty minimal in terms of the, the intersection there. Uh, does it make sense? What are your thoughts about this idea that we have an American identity? Like, what does the the Massachusetts voter who's excited about Daniel Allen does it make sense to speak of that person as having some common identity with uh, someone in Arkansas uh, in the Ozarks who's totally excited about another Huckabee for governor? I guess I see this as one of the challenges for all Americans. But you know, we're both raising kids and trying to impart an identity to them in some ways. Is there an American identity still? Does it make sense to speak of that? Um, I think it does. And I think there is. Um, Though I take most of my guidance in thinking about this from James Baldwin, um, in part because Baldwin reminds me anyway, that the struggle to find and articulate an American identity in the face of a wildly divided nation isn't new. There may be particular details about the present moment that are distinct, but that that general struggle isn't new. Um, And in particular, I'm thinking about Baldwin's essay, The Discovery of What It Means to Be an American. And it's a great little essay by Baldwin where he talks about a point in his life where he was so disgusted with the United States, and in particular with what we would call the systematic racism within the United States, that he thought the only thing he could do, not just as a matter of intellectual safety, but as a matter of self-preservation, that he had to leave the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, So he left the United States and he went to France And um, he tells the story about how in France, he had sort of expected that the people who he would find the greatest connection with were other people of African descent in Europe. And that proved not to be the case when he was in these cafes in Paris. um, The people who he found himself feeling the most commonality with were other Americans, whether they be white or black. And he said he made what to him was the horrifying realization that he was just as American as any white Texas GI. Baldwin uses the phrase elsewhere that he realized that he had been mangled by the same machinery, that we'd all been mangled by the same machinery. It's a kind of dark phrase. But he he talks in that essay about how even across lines that we take to be in some ways unbridgeable in American politics, there is an Americanness there. Now, what's tough about this is that Baldwin says what he realizes that he has in common with those white Texas GIs is that as Americans, they're always struggling for a sense of identity. Baldwin's take is that what's constitutive of American identity is the consistent search for a kind of American identity, in part because of the way in which the American nation is founded by people who are displaced both willingly and unwillingly and can't rely on some of the 
easier historical markers of ancestry, culture, shared language, um, you know, shared geographical upbringing to bind them together. That can be a pretty thin kind of sense of shared identity, but I stand with Baldwin in thinking that it's a thicker way to connect a people than it might seem at first. Um, and I do think that that's there, though at the same time, I do find myself wishing that we had more powerful voices in the public sphere trying to articulate that sense of shared American identity. I think that what has sustained this nation through some of its darkest and most divisive hours are national leaders who have really worked through speech to try to show Americans together collectively and individuals the higher things that we might have in common with each other. I'm hoping that we can link to some of these things um, when we put out the podcast. So perhaps link to that address by Baldwin might be a great mm -hmm. thing to put on there. Um, if we're thinking about the, if we go back in the political terms of the political parties, and we're thinking about what a politician can do to try and contribute to that. Because what I hear you saying a little bit is it's a very much a part of the American identity to be looking for an identity, right? Um, one of our former teachers is uh, Professor Robert George. He talks about how his take on American exceptionalism is that it's that the United States, in theory, was not founded based on blood or ancestral land or a particular religion. We know in practice that's a more complicated story, but it seems like part of the American ethos has been just trying to figure out who we are, given we don't have the same sort of tie that, say, someone from Japan would have to the, the history of Japan. Let's let's say the Biden administration asked for your thoughts. How does how's the President Biden reach out? to those who disagree with him while still maintaining his his convictions about what politics are. like what can a, what can a politician do and i'm thinking also of uh our representative peter meyer newly elected in grand rapids in uh in michigan who's one of the 10 republicans who voted for impeachment of president trump what can a conservative republican do to reach out or at least help bridge this gap if we want to talk about it that way or what can a progressive politician what does it look like for those in those positions of power and influence to contribute to that sort of um, story? That's a tough question. And I'm, first of all, I'll say I'm not sure that elected politicians are always the best people to do that. I think in the history of American politics, some people who have done that for the country, Abraham Lincoln is the great case that comes to mind, have been elected officials. But so many more of the people who have done that have been people who haven't held political office. Uh, and I'm thinking of people like Baldwin. I'm thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. I'm thinking further back of uh, Frederick Douglass. I'm thinking of Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, I think there's a real role I, I want to say here for people outside elective office to do that kind of work. But I will say on um, Biden's behalf, I thought he said something really important in his inaugural address that I'd like to hear people say more, um, which is that he talked about unity, which is basically the part that got covered in the, the mainstream media. But he said something more than just, I want to unify people. He said, unity doesn't mean agreement. It, it has to be disagreement within unity. And in fact, disagreement is the prior condition that necessitates democracy. If we all agreed on the same things all the time, we wouldn't need to vote on things because we'd all agree. And that in fact, we should 
accept our disagreement, to some extent celebrate our disagreement because it's a sign of our freedom and our ability to have a kind of shared commitment to working out those disagreements through formal political systems. I'd like to hear people say more of that to help Americans remind Americans that it's not as simple as you're with us or you're against us, we're together or we're apart, but that it's in some ways our agreement to disagree that's a big part of what can bring us together. That's, I think, the message that I'd like to hear more, particularly given the events of the last couple months. Yeah, it reminds me of something that I think, if my memory is right, you said to me uh, years ago, which was that we had lost the notion of the noble adversary in politics, or at least it's become more rare. And I guess it would be paradoxical if the voices that we need to bring us back to that may not be those in politics. That, that makes sense. You mentioned some different authors, and one of the things I really enjoy about being a, a professor is being able to dip into different disciplines and topics. And, and you've done this quite a bit, and you come by it honestly. And I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about stories, about literature, about how authors that are so gifted with writing about the human condition, um, the, the interplay between that and a political science professor. So many of your writings have drawn from people like Baldwin and Mark Twain. In one of my classes, we ended the class by reading a piece that you wrote about slavery in the Harry Potter novels, which was fantastic capstone to what we've been talking about, about justice. Would you talk a little bit about why that is you see those two? I mean, so in, in the academy, we separate those, right? You have English departments and you have literature classes and then you have politics and they're often seen as hermetically sealed off, but that's not how you operate. And I don't think that makes any sense, but would you talk a little bit about your love of stories and how those impact your work? Well, it's interesting because you're right. I love stories. I love fiction. And when I went into graduate school, I wanted to keep reading it. And that was really in some ways why I started down the road of studying literature and politics, in some ways not even understanding fully why I was doing it. After a couple decades of thinking about it, though, I've become more and more convinced that that impulse is an important one and, and certainly a defensible one. To me, when we're talking about politics, it's really easy to make the mistake that politics is just the institutions, the formal institutions we associate with this modern state in particular, right? Uh, the different branches of government, elections, you know, vote counts, and political scientists, I think especially American political scientists, have gotten really lost in the study of those institutions. But in studying sort of that kind of superficial conflict between Americans, we often lose sight of what the historian Michael Kamen says, which is that American politics is largely defined by the conflict within Americans. Hmm. And spelling that out is really important to me. I guess more broadly, I think that when we're talking about any political system, not just that of the United States, stories are foundational. It's ideas that make institutions. It's ideas that move action. As my teacher at Princeton, Eddie Gloud, has said in my presence before, it's the moral imagination that is the true battleground of politics. Part of why I think I got attracted to the study of African-American literature in particular is that African-Americans, I think, have understood that long about the American political system, that we can talk about laws and forms all we want, but if we don't address questions of moral imagination, we're not going to make substantive change. And even prior to that, we're not going to fully understand who we are or what we're doing. And so to me, any education in politics that doesn't give some attention to the realm of fiction and the stories we tell each other about who we are is an education that's lacking indeed. Well, you've just helped me solve a mystery. I gave a job talk here at Calvin and 
it ended up working out because I'm still here, but my job <laughs> talk uh, drew on Dostoevsky and something I called incarnational apologetics. And I got a pretty um, lively set of questions from a colleague about where were the institutions, right? That's that's kind of what the expectation was that a political science talk needed to, and of course, a political science education does include institutions, of course, mm-hmm. but it's not all just institutions. So I appreciate, uh, I, I'm thinking of what, what did Lincoln say? Um, you're the little lady who wrote that book <laughs> regarding um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And in many ways, the Civil War was the result of the failure of institutions, but it was literature that <laughs> helped move us forward in the direction we needed to go. Any books or movies or shows you've been reading or watching lately that you think that people need to pay more attention to? Um, That's a really excellent question. I have a kind of offbeat choice, or at least it's going to be offbeat to anyone who's not living in the greater Los Angeles area. But there's a Netflix show that has one season out right now. I think they're making a second season called Hentified. It might be pronounced gentified, but I was figuring it was a play on the Spanish word. And it's about a family that owns a taco shop in East Los Angeles as that area is gentrifying. And it's A funny show. First of all, it's really true, I think, to so much of the experience of being in Los Angeles. But it's a great show that's at turns funny and really powerful about one family's journey into negotiating what's a kind of constantly changing field of American life. And I recommend it in part because I think it's escaped the notice of a lot of people outside the region I live in. But it's really a terrific little show, and I recommend it to all of your listeners. So one of the things I thought it would be interesting to ask your thoughts about is just the state of controversy that followed the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. And not so much the procedural controversies, though we can talk about that as well. I think we're both interested in constitutional politics and the Supreme Court. But there was this sort of discussion that came up about this conservative feminist movement, that this was an incredibly accomplished professor who also had a large family and a remarkable personal story. Uh, and there was some backlash over that in some quarters. And it, it just raised this question of what's the state of feminism today with regards to accomplishment in a professional part of life and fulfillment with family or more traditional understands of family or, or married life. I don't have a great way to formulate that question, Sue, but I figured you'd have something interesting to say about it, given you're kind of doing similar things, incredibly accomplished professionally, but also family life and, and a life outside of just what a professor's day-to-day looks like. So I'll, I'll just stop there and, and, and turn it over to you. Yeah, I was also interested in that aspect of the Amy Coney Barrett story, and I thought about how Justice Scalia also had a large family, and yet no one saw fit to congratulate him for his multiple modes of accomplishment. So, of course, they were multiple modes of accomplishment for him as well. I think when I think about these questions, certainly one of the things that I'd like to see us talk about more is to not make those questions about professional accomplishment and family care be exclusively relegated or mostly relegated to questions around women. Mm -hmm. I think that for all of us who want to have families and want to care for our children, but also either want to or have to have jobs, there are important questions that we can ask about how welcoming this society is to that possibility 
And I prefer to have those conversations than to have conversations that I think in practice have mostly served to pit women against each other um, in what, you know, Ralph Ellison might call a kind of battle royale in which everybody comes out bruised and nobody really makes any gains in terms of having a better balance or a better ability to negotiate those competing multiple demands, all of which are important to the pursuit of a good life. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks. Um, can I ask you a, a kind of in the weeds political science field question? Sure. So in our department, we had a little discussion recently um, about a piece that came out in the Chronicle for Higher Ed on January 14th. And this was a sort of an op-ed written by Aaron Pineda, who is a political science professor at Smith College. And in the op-ed, she was putting forth some pretty strong charges about the field of political science. And she said, like American democracy, it also has a history of white supremacy. And as a field, quote, it has reproduced ideologies that obscure violence, exploitation, and systemic injustice under the cover of U.S. democracy, end quote. Her point is that this means there needs to be a reckoning to kind of shake out the historical legacy of political science as a field and its complicity in covering many of these injustices. I thought that was a very strong, interesting charge. I also thought it was interesting because it raised this question of to what extent should political scientists and political theorists as a subset of political scientists be involved in trying to make their communities better? There, there is this value among some of objectivity. To be a real political science means you're not taking sides. That's a lot there to throw at you, but this kind of, I guess, a, two things to talk about. How do we assess the complicity of an academic field for past injustices? And what do you make of the role of a professor and a politics professor in particular as, as citizen, right? What's our role with, with citizenship? Is that part of what we're supposed to be doing is producing good citizens? Um, well, I think that's a great question. And the first thing that I would say in response to the first question is that I think political scientists and people in other disciplines can do this for their own disciplines, but political science is mine. So I'll talk about that one. Need to do a better job if we want to have these conversations studying the history of our own discipline. Now, fortunately for me, my husband, who is also, as you mentioned, a political scientist, has been studying the history of political science. And so I've stolen from the insights he's gleaned some, I think, important things. Um, and I should say the first thing that we realized is that there isn't much work on the history of political science, and there probably should be more. But from what Will has made me understand, political science emerges in the mid-1800s, mostly due to the efforts of a guy named Francis Lieber, who, Micah, you may know because he corresponded at one point with Tocqueville. And Francis Lieber is a German who's interested in developing political science mostly as a way to export and further the project of the German national state, um, which is not an unracialized project. Right. To the extent that that project moves into the United States, right, and becomes a kind of intellectual project, it is rooted in a particular way of thinking about politics that foregrounds the modern state, particularly the kind of systems and thinking and theory of the kind of Hegelian German project. 
And maybe what's even more interesting is that as Bob Vitalis at the University of Penn, and again, this is through my husband, has been studying the subfield of international relations in particular, was created to, quote unquote, deal with um, those populations of people either outside, you know, largely German, Anglo, modern states, and people within or communities within those large, modern, largely German, Anglo type states um, who resisted or weren't in line with the aims of the modern national state. I don't want to go too much more into the weeds there. And in fact, I'm the wrong person to ask. My husband is really the right person to ask here. In other words, there there really is in the origins of the history of the discipline, a kind of orientation toward the project of the largely European modern state that, of course, has racialized dimensions. Sure. And I think that studying that history is probably the first step to really being able to think about the limitations and boundaries of the discipline over time. That is, it's really easy, you know, superficially to look at a thing and say, it's racist, it's exclusionary. But if we really are committed to the project of trying to make a political science that's, in Aristotelian terms, more oriented toward the good life as opposed to a particular vision of political order, I think we need to do that kind of studying first. As far as the question about political scientists and contributing to the community. This was one of the things that horrified me when I came to graduate school. I'd come from working in quote unquote real politics in the New Jersey assembly. And this was around the election of 2000. And I was shocked by how many people at Princeton at an elite institution were committed to the idea that we shouldn't vote, that we shouldn't be seen to be advocating for particular candidates or points of view. To me, if you are fortunate enough to be able to inhabit the category of citizenship, (laughs) your duties as a citizen of a place should trump your duties to a profession. And I don't think my feelings about that have changed much over the years. In fact, one of the things that I really welcome about the last couple years, and maybe one of the few nice things you'll get me to say about the internet, (laughs) is that I really welcome the fact that so many academics are making efforts to speak beyond the academy and to groups that don't just include themselves. And I think there's a real hunger for that. You know, Heather Cox Richardson, a historian at Boston College, is making literally millions of dollars writing basically 1,500 word essays every day about how to understand American politics in terms of American history. So I, you know, in general, believing that to whom much is given, much is expected, think that if you're fortunate enough to be a tenured professor, even of political science, you have an obligation to help your fellow citizens, your fellow country people, your fellow humans live better lives and better understand the world that they inhabit. I don't think that's necessarily incompatible with the aspiration to objectivity, though I hate that terminology because I think objectivity in the social science sense is impossible to achieve. For instance, I think you can mostly, for instance, study American political history and write about that American political history in ways that can inform people without you necessarily concluding by saying, and that's why you should all vote for Bernie Sanders. I do think we have a duty to inform and that we shouldn't be deluded into the idea that we can occupy a kind of position from nowhere above and beyond the political societies that, in fact, set the terms by which we're able to do the kind of work that we do in the first place.
Well, that was a question. I was pretty sure I knew where you were going to go and, <laughs> and appreciate that. I feel like I gave you one right over the plate and you knocked it out of the park. And so you, knowing me, won't be surprised that I resonate with all of that. Calvin has, we have a, you know, a mission statement, as many places do. Our mission statement is Calvin University equips students to think deeply, to act justly, and to live wholeheartedly as Christ's agents of renewal in the world. And so part of that, that's true across all of our disciplines. I, it makes me think that you know a department of politics might be a better name than the department of political science, particularly given what you shared about the history of political science as a discipline. And I think the other thing I got from that is I need to schedule Will for, for a session of, of a Henry conversation at some point soon, if he's willing. I want to ask you a little bit, you know, this is, I'm speaking from Calvin University, obviously a religious school, and religion remains in a pretty significant institution in American cultural life. This is something that you know, we're both fans of Tocqueville, one of the most astute observers mm-hmm. of American politics or any politics and an astute with the place of religion. Religions, people talk about as being both a liability, as having the potential to really inflame conflict and animosity, but it also has motivated some of the best things about political life. I think of the religious roots of the civil rights movement in the African-American church and abolition earlier than that and other things. Um do you have any thoughts about the role that citizens of faith can play or what they can contribute to American politics and culture moving forward in this new strange chapter post-Trump? That's a really terrific question. Um, you know, I'm coming from such a different cultural milieu, and Micah, you as a California native have some sense of what I'm talking about, but for listeners who might not, when I moved from the Northeast to Southern California, I was struck by how secular, unchurched, um, unaware in some ways of religion, so many of my students, and for that matter, colleagues were. I guess what I want to say is that I think that if we're going to really fully realize ourselves as a country, there has to be a place for all of us to express our faiths differently. Um, You know, I really like the book by Teresa Vejan called Mere Civility, where she reminds us that the whole concept of civility in American politics was really fleshed out early on by Roger Williams, and that what Roger Williams took to be true was, look, we're all going to ask really big questions about ultimate meaning, and we're going to come up with different kinds of answers. And we need to be able to do that. And in fact, we need to be able to evangelize about our sense of the answers to those big questions. And we need to be able to do this, and yet we need to be able to not murder each other. That's pretty low ground as an aspiration, but Williams thought that should be the aspiration in some ways of American politics and the standards for civility. I worry that when contemporary commentators and academics talk about civility or talk about unity, they're aiming at some kind of imaginary ideal state where we all agree about all of the same kinds of questions all of the time, and to the extent we don't really talk about those things. I think that for this nation to work, we need to be able to talk about those things and that there needs to be in some way, at least in the circles in which I run, more room for people to 
explore and talk about the role of faith in their own lives without that being a source of offense or difficulty. I appreciate that. I, as you were speaking, it reminded me a little bit of a couple of things. One, just the theological doctrine of the fall means we're not going to agree on uh-huh. everything. And then, you know, we see that reflected in um, Federalist number 10, uh-huh. right? That there's, it's sown into the human nature that there's going to be these differences. How do we best navigate them and find the sweet spot between not despairing that we can make things better, but not also thinking that we can bring, you know, immunitizing the eschaton is the famous saying. Right, goes, right. One of the things that I always say to my students when we study classical political theory and particularly ancient Greek political theory is that it's such a good counter to some of the contemporary fantasies on both the American right and the American left about what things could be like. Because in ancient Athens, they were living what is the fantasy in some corners of a culturally, religiously, ethnically unified people, right? Those guys were all related to each other. They all grew up with a very small scale. Um, And yet they were riven by disagreement and faction, they end up voting to murder Socrates, right? Like there's there's no world in which that even within the constraints of a system that looks very different from our own um, religiously in terms of just diversity alone, they weren't without some of the essential problems that we were not. And, you know, to people on the left who fantasize, well, if we just talk about these things, right? If we talk about our differences and disagreements, if we talk lots and lots, then we'll avoid violence and we'll avoid persecution. Again, ancient in Athens. They talked about everything all the time in the assembly, and they still disagree about everything or riven by faction and vote to execute Socrates, right? I think sometimes in American politics, we can fantasize about smaller states, more homogenous states, more intellectually engaged states. But I think the ancient Athenians are a good reminder that those really are fantasies, that in fact, politics is a kind of rough and tumble business of a particular kind of being where, um, you know, the marvel and the difficulty of ourselves is that we do see the world differently, experience the world differently, interpret the world differently, and all do all of those things fallibly. And yet we have to figure out ways to work together to improve the quality of our lives so that we're not just all living on the brink of starvation at every moment. That's a kind of enduring challenge of politics. And Americans aren't going to fantasize their way or wish their way or nostalgia their way or technologize our way out of those problems. I couldn't agree more, and I'm glad you just said that. I don't think I could put it that way. It struck me as a great intro to one of your books, which is the Traveling Back book, which emphasizes how important travel is for recognizing difference and the irreducibility of difference. The other thing, just as an aside, I don't know if we'll keep this, but it struck me what you just said also is it would be important to bring in for the integralists on the right who are yearning for this old throne and altar combination. Um, And the same thing you said about the Athenian assembly, certainly true if not more so about some of the supposedly golden eras of when the Catholic Church or whatever your preferred religion was in charge of politics. Sue mcwilliams Barnes, I just want to thank you for coming on and running the gamut on so many different topics and questions and being willing. I have learned a great deal and appreciate your thought on all of this and appreciate your willingness to come and be a guest on Henry Conversations. Thanks, Micah. It was really a lot of fun to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us for another Henry Conversation, sponsored by the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University. 
My guest today has been Professor Susan McWilliams Barnt of Pomona College. We met on Friday, January 29th, 2021. Thanks to Sam Tuitt for being a sound engineering wizard and producing this episode. I hope you'll join us for our next Henry Conversation, which will be dropping in the not too distant future and featuring a conversation with Robert George of Princeton University.